Well, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. This has been a teaching series going through uh, the season of Advent together. Um, one of the things about Advent that you may or may not have caught on to is that the focal point or the character who comes to the forefront of our teaching throughout Advent is John the Baptist. He is the one who prepares the way of the Lord. But this morning, we kind of take a little bit of a turn and we're going to be looking at a different character within the Christmas story. And this will sound a lot more Christmassy to many of you. But we're going to read together Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 through 25. And Matthew's gospel comes to us this way. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Weird. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Fathers, we turn to your word this morning. We ask that you would give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see what it is that you are calling our attention to. Shape and form us as you have throughout the centuries and the life of this church by your word this day. We need your grace to do this. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen and amen. Well, two years, two years, that's about how long Paige and I had been discussing and praying about being open to leaving our previous church. People would ask the inevitable question uh, that they ask every associate and youth pastor, they would ask of me, so when are you going to become a real pastor and when I retorted, I think I already am, they would always respond, well, you know what I mean, right? You know what I mean. They may or may not have known, but Paige and I were having similar conversations in our home. To be sure, the conversations were never about becoming a real pastor or doing real ministry. I truly believe that I was already engaged with real ministry and real pastoral work as a youth and associate pastor in our previous congregation. But our conversations at home rather centered on whether or not we were offering all of ourselves, all of our capacities, all of our gifts for the service of our church were the things that we could do elsewhere that we weren't currently able to do in our previous congregation. Were we leaving anything on the table? Were there any opportunities where our ministry could be utilized in greater ways for Jesus and for the local church in our denomination? And as we discussed in those years, it would be fair to say uh, that the prospect of leaving our current life situation and ministry felt very intimidating, at least to me personally. But I increasingly just felt a desire and pull toward pastoral ministry elsewhere. 
And this sense of call was confirmed to me when our district superintendent, he would encourage and sort of harass me from time to time to let him know when I was ready to leave our congregation to go do some lead ministry elsewhere. But what stalled any progress toward that end for two years was the paralysis I seemed to feel when I thought about doing lead ministry in a local congregation. You see, we were in a familiar place with a familiar people. Things were healthy and things were comfortable. There was no push out of there. There was no need to leave. There was never any belief in us that the grass was greener somewhere else. We loved our congregation. We very much appreciated where we were in life and in ministry. But what if we went somewhere, right? And they didn't like me. (laughs) What if we went somewhere and they didn't like my family? We've heard all of the horror stories of bad relationships between pastors and churches. What if, we weren't, what if we went somewhere and I wasn't capable of doing the job? What if I overestimated my abilities? What if I didn't have the right gifts? What if I didn't have the right capacities? What if I'm the pastor people criticize in back rooms and in small groups and in prayer groups? But what if it doesn't just work out? What if, what if somewhere along the way I fail? All of these paralyzing thoughts and questions came down to a single thing that was holding me captive, and that was fear. Fear can be paralyzing. The fear of inadequacy, the fear of rejection, the fear of criticism, the fear of losing the security that we felt as a family in Santa Barbara, the fear perhaps undergirding all of that of failure. I don't know if you've ever been there, but fear can be a debilitating thought. And I don't mean fear as in being terrified of an imposing threat or of a wild animal. I mean the kind of fear that causes us to sort of shrink back from doing something, to shrink back from the moment, to shrink back from the opportunity. This kind of fear, it can paralyze students and kids from trying something new, trying out for the theater or for music or trying a new sport or taking up a new instrument. What if I get cut? What if I don't make it? What if I look like a fool? What if I'm bad at whatever this thing it is that I'm pursuing? But this kind of fear can debilitate people from pursuing jobs and careers that they're actually passionate about. What if people think my pursuit is frivolous or naive? This kind of fear, it can rob us from deep and intimate relationships. What if this person ends up hurting me? How does putting myself out there make me vulnerable in relationship and in love? This kind of fear, it too can even hinder us from sharing the faith that we have with friends and family. What if they think that I am silly for the things that I believe? What if they laugh that I believe in things like a virgin birth and God coming in the form of a baby? It is after when you really sit back and think about it. It's kind of a ridiculous thing, you know? It's kind of crazy. And there's no doubt that fear can play a very healthy role in our lives. Fear can make us aware of our limitations There are certain things that we just cannot do. Fear can help bring issues to the surface that need some sort of consideration or thought, maybe something that we hadn't considered ahead of time. But whenever fear sort of rears its head in our lives, it has this potential to paralyze and debilitate us. It can cause us to shrink back from stepping into something new, embracing something great, or perhaps even from becoming all that God intends for us to be. In our Advent text this morning, we discover that one of the primary characters in the Christmas story has the potential of being paralyzed by fear. The way he he faces it might give us some insight, right? The way that Joseph faces his fear might give us some insight into how we as people might face our fears. 
As a total side note, I'm super glad that the Bible is full of just ordinary, relatable characters like Joseph. Like he's in the middle of his life and he has no sense of like what I should do, what I shouldn't do, what's the right direction, what is going on or anything. And he's just this ordinary guy sort of fumbling his way through life. And this, this character has something perhaps to teach us this morning. You see, two of the four gospels contain what are known as the birth narratives of Jesus. I don't know if you knew this, but all four gospels do not contain this sort of Christmas story. Matthew and Luke... Um, sort of contain the birth narratives of Jesus. Mark and John don't tell much of anything about Jesus's birth, but both Matthew and Luke sort of uniquely contribute to our understanding of those events that were surrounding Jesus's birth. Luke's gospel account contains the accounts of shepherds in fields and there being no room in the end. That actually isn't recorded in Matthew's gospel. But in Matthew's gospel, he tells us the story of the wise men who came to visit Jesus, which is not recorded in Luke's gospel. But one of the other unique things about Luke's gospel is that it tells us the story of Christ's birth primarily from the perspective of Mary. She is the focal point. She is the main character of that birth narrative in Luke's gospel. But in Matthew's gospel, we get a very different perspective. We get the story told through the perspective of Joseph. And I'm glad they give us Joseph's perspective in this particular pregnancy. As a husband to a pregnant wife, if you don't know, my, my wife is pregnant. We're having a baby girl, which I'm very stoked about. But I can say that generally when you're the husband to a pregnant wife, I try to give her all of the credit in the world. I try to get rid of all of that language like we're pregnant or we're expecting. Like that's sort of true, but we are not pregnant. She is pregnant. She's doing all of the work. We are not having an easy pregnancy. She is tough as nails and is crushing pregnancy right now, right? We are not having a hard time sleeping. She is the one who's dealing with the challenges of sleeping. Ladies, let me, you get all the credit. You literally bring all the people into existence, all of them. There's not a single person that wasn't brought about by a woman. And I'm usually not interested in hearing about the husband's experience of a pregnancy. No one wants to hear about how hard it is for the man, right, during a pregnancy. And if you want to see eye rolls, guys, just talk about how hard your wife's pregnancy is for you. <laughs> One way to not have a happy night in your home. But there needs to be an exception to every rule. And in the case of this particular pregnancy, this Christmas pregnancy, the whole Mary and Joseph thing, I actually am interested in Joseph's perspective and sort of like experience of these events. Like I'm not trying to take away any shine away from Mary, but I'm kind of interested. Like what did Joseph think when his wife came to him and says, like, look, I'm pregnant, but like it was a God thing, you know? Like how do you explain <laughs> that away? Like Joseph's like, so let me get this straight. You are not with another man, but you're pregnant. Yeah, exactly. Like, how does that, what is going through your mind if you're Joseph in this story? And so we're going to look in a little bit at Joseph. And in Matthew's gospel, we discover that Joseph is a son of David. This is a critical detail to the story, though not the focus of this morning's message. And it's critical because the Messiah was supposed to come from the lineage of King David. That's why Jesus' genealogical record is in the beginning of Matthew. We think it's so like boring, right, to see who was whose kid and this whole family tree thing. But the whole point is to say, this Messiah, he's the one that you've been waiting for. He's actually coming from the line of David. But according to Matthew, Joseph isn't just a son of David. By all accounts, he's also a really good guy. Matthew 
Matthew's gospel describes him as faithful to the law, or as other translations say it, as a righteous man. And this, too, is an important detail because of what's currently going on in Joseph's betrothal or engagement to Mary. You see, engagement in first century Jewish world gave the two parties an equivalent status of being as a married couple. Typically, both parties continued to live at home for about a year until their wedding ceremony, but they were considered the equivalent of husband and of wife. In order to break off an engagement, you had to go through a process of divorce in the first century. This also meant that any sort of infidelity, which in this case there might be a little suspicion of, during that engagement was the equivalent of infidelity within the context of marriage, and therefore punishable as such. And if we remember the scene in John's gospel, John chapter 8, where there's an adulterous woman who's brought before Jesus so that they might stone her. These are the consequences of infidelity within the context of marriage. And that's really shocking to us, right? We think that that's crazy. And for some of us, it's very infuriating that the gospels and the Bible tells this story, particularly in the 21st century. But this is the reality of what's actually going on in the first century, And so Mary's pregnancy here is a serious problem. It's a serious problem if you are a husband and a righteous, law-abiding man. Joseph is caught between doing what the law says ought to be done on the one hand, divorcing and punishing Mary as such, and showing her mercy on the other hand, just quietly divorcing her. These are the two options that I imagine Joseph is deciding between when Matthew tells us that he was considering these things. Have you ever been in a tough situation where you felt like you had to decide between two horrible options? Those moments where you feel like you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Those are the moments that fear can often begin to dictate and control so much of what we decide to do moving forward. Fear often comes to just a single anxious thought in our minds. I don't want to make a bad decision. And so we just become paralyzed and stuck in whatever it is that we are doing. But it's in the midst of considering his options that Joseph has a dream in which an angel appears to him. Side note, let's talk a different time about how God talks to us in dreams. That is a crazy phenomenon. There is so much like nutty stuff going on in this particular story. But generally, right, this is a very unusual way for God to communicate to people. But Joseph has this dream. There's an angel that appears. And when the angel appears to him in the dream, the angel offers the typical greeting that angels give to people when they greet them. Do not be afraid. (laughs) If we were to explore into the other moments in the Christmas story where where a messenger, an angelic messenger appears to somebody, we would see that this do not be afraid greeting is repeated all throughout the Christmas story. When the angel appears to Zechariah in the temple, the angel says to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. When an angel appears to Mary, the angels say, do not be afraid, Mary. (laughs) When the first angel appears to shepherds in a field, the angel says them, do not be afraid. There's a lot more of me coming here in a few moments, but I'm just trying to ease you into this experience. <laughs> Some have speculated that angels are scary looking creatures. They likely do not look like small children in diapers with cupid-like bows and arrows that we often portray them as in artwork. But it's also possible that the appearance of an angel feels a lot more like someone jumping out at you unexpectedly in the dark, right? It's one of my favorite things to do to Levi, and he enjoys it, so I do it a lot. But whatever the reason, 
these appearances of angels were terrifying to those who experienced them. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the angel appears to Joseph with these words, do not be afraid, do not fear. But what is surprising is that when the angel offers these words to Joseph, they're in regards to something very specific, a very specific situation. It isn't just like, don't be terrified that I'm here. It's in regards to a very specific circumstance that's going on in the life of Joseph. There's this unique greeting that the angel gives to Joseph here. You see, the angel goes on to say to Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Do not be afraid, Joseph, to embrace this unusual, strange, unforeseen, abrupt, surprising, astonishing, and extraordinary situation because it is of God. Do not be afraid to join God in his saving work in the world. God is doing something new and he wants you to participate with him in it. If that's not enough, the angel goes on to say that the child that Joseph will be a father to will save the world from its sins. This child will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. If that first part about the Holy Spirit wasn't intimidating enough, like, no, no, the pregnancy, that was the Holy Spirit. The whole part about you are going to raise the Savior of the world would frighten me in a hurry, right? I'm already terrified enough raising a little boy without having the pressure to make sure that he's the Savior of the world. Like, that's crazy. But did you know, God still works with ordinary folks in unexpected ways to bring about his saving work and his presence into the world today. We need to only not fear in our obedience to join him in this sort of activity. After my freshman year of high school, I went on an eight-week-long missions trip to Brazil. The trip was with an organization I had heard about through a friend. My team consisted of about 20 kids from around the country, none of which I knew, and three adult leaders who my parents never met, nor to this day have ever met. I was 14, going to Brazil for two months with people my family and I had never met. The year was 2000, it's a long time ago. That's 20 years ago. There were no smartphones, We weren't using Skype to video chat back home. In fact, we didn't even really have any sort of verbal communication. There's like no phone calls. We just sort of did the old snail mail thing and writing letters back and forth between me and my parents. But since becoming a parent, I've looked back at that trip multiple times and I've thought so many times in my head, what were my parents thinking? Parents don't let their kids go to their local mall without a smartphone these days, right? And my parents shipped me off to a foreign country they had never been to, I had never been to, with people that none of us had known. And I've asked my mom this question many times. Weren't you nervous or afraid for me? I was naive. I didn't know that I was, this was a crazy thing to do. I was 14. I had no sense of danger or risk. And her response has always been the same. When you're following God's will, there's nothing for us to be afraid of. No matter how crazy, no no matter how unexpected, no matter how strange it seems, there is nothing to be afraid of when you're in the midst of God's will for your life. Where is God calling you, church, to join him in his saving work in the world? 
Is it in some sort of short-term missions trip? Is it in bringing up conversations of faith and spirituality with friends and family? Is it in serving in our church in new and fresh ways? Is it in serving in our city in a new and fresh way? Is it in starting a nonprofit? Is it the pursuit of writing a book? Is it in learning to play an instrument to join our worship team? Bass players, always welcome. Jermaine, you're great, but we gotta have more bass players, amen? Is it in taking your discipleship seriously by joining a discipleship group for the first time in 2020? Where is God calling you to do something strange and unexpected, something that perhaps might cause a little bit of fear and hesitation on your part? Because this is how God moves in the church and it's how God moves in the world. He does not move through the comfortable or familiar. He always stretches us beyond what we think we can do on our own, beyond anything that makes sense. Now, to be sure, I'm not encouraging you to do whatever you want without reservation or thought, right? The call of the text this morning is, is that we discern what, where God is on the move, and regardless of how unexpected or strange or odd we might think that thing is, that we would have the courage to join him in that work. And a basic litmus test for discernment comes to us in this morning's passage. Here are two questions, if you're wondering if this is of God or not of God, is will this activity help save people from their sins? And will this activity bring the presence of God to people? Will this activity help save people from their sins? And will this activity bring the presence of God to people in the world? You see, whatever God is calling you to, as crazy and unexpected as it might be, if the Holy Spirit is truly in it, you need not be afraid to step into that new reality. Imagine a church community that fearlessly embraced God's saving activity in the world. What might that look like in Ventura, California in 2020? Will we, Powerhouse Church, be a fearless church in 2020? See, the God revealed to us in the person of Jesus that he always works in strange ways and uncomfortable ways. God always works in ways where God's people need to place their faith in him. They know that they cannot do it on their own. And there's no doubt that in 2020, if we are discerning what God is doing in our church, there will be times where we're sitting around thinking like, this doesn't make sense. Pastor, you have lost your mind. We've never done that before. God's never done that in our church before. That's not how we've done it over the past however many decades. That is crazy that you think that we could do church that way. But my prayer is that when that time arrives, because it will arrive, in any church that's pursuing faith sincerely and pursuing Jesus, that time arrives. My prayer is that we as a church would be able to join God in the new thing that he's doing in our church. That we would join God in his saving work in the world. That when the time arrives for us to be the presence of Jesus in our city, that by our faith, we would be encouraged to rid ourselves of fear in our decision making that we wouldn't shrink back from embracing God's activity, but join him without reservation. God wants to do something in our church, church. It's the same thing God has been doing in the church throughout the centuries. God wants to use our church to save people from their sins, amen? God wants to use our church to be his visible presence in the world, bringing love, hope, joy, and peace, amen? Do you want to be that kind of church? 
You see, the name of Jesus found in our text this morning indicates that this is Jesus' mission in the world, and we, as the body of Christ, get to share in that mission. Wouldn't it be something to see people saved from their sins? Not just the consequences, but lives actually changed because people were saved from their sins. How cool if our church was known as that kind of church. Wouldn't it be something if when people were with you, when people came on Sunday mornings, and on Wednesday nights, and Tuesday morning Bibles, and all the small groups, it was like they were with, they were in the very presence of God. Wouldn't it be something? The confidence to step into God's mission in the world is founded on the promise that Jesus offers us in the final verse of Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel ends this way, and it's intentional. Surely I am with you always. Surely I am Emmanuel and present in you always to the very end of the age. God, church, is with us. We need not fear to join him in his saving work in the world because he is Emmanuel to us. Let us put away with fear and join God in his saving activity and longing to be present with a hurting and sinful world. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, Christmas reminds us <laughs> that we are, you come and work in ordinary lives with ordinary folks in ordinary places and towns, unexpected, in unexpected ways. And our longing, God, is that we too would be caught up into this work that you have been doing for thousands of years using ordinary people like us, using ordinary communities like our church to bring about this, your saving work, our longing and desire, Jesus, is that you would utilize us as instruments, as a community of people to save the world from their sins and to be your visible, tangible presence of love, hope, joy and peace in the world. Instill within us, God, your Holy Spirit, that we might discern your activity well and that we would have the courage to join you in that work in the coming year. We thank you that you are a Savior and that you are our God. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Receive this benediction, church. May the God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ because the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Go in his peace. Merry Christmas.